Welcome to Make No Bones. I'm Toby Altman. And I'm Emily Barton Altman. Make No Bones is a podcast about poetry and the creative life. Each episode, we ask a poet to read a poem and talk about it. They tell us how they wrote it and explain how it reflects the broader priorities of their work. This week's episode features Nicole Brown. Hi, my name is Nicole Brown. Nicole Brown received her MFA from the Vermont College, studied literature at Oxford University, and was the editorial assistant for the late Hunter S. Thompson. Her first collection, Sister, a novel in poems, was first published in 2007 by Red Hen Press, and a new edition will be reissued by Sibling Rivalry Press in 2018. Her second book, a biography in poems called Fanny Says, came out from BOA Editions in 2015, and the audiobook of that collection will be available in late 2017. Currently, she is the editor for the Marie Alexander Poetry Series and is on faculty at the Sewanee School of Letters MFA program and the Great Smokies Writing Program at UNCA. She lives with her wife, poet Jessica Jacobs, in Asheville, North Carolina. She read her poem, Fuck, from Fanny Says for us, and we talked about code switching, cursing, and above all, Nicole's grandmother, Fanny, and her love of the F word. Fanny says is a it's a biography a biography in poems um, of my grandmother. Her name was Frances Lee Cox, and she was from Bowling Green, Kentucky, and had seven children. And the youngest of her girls, her sixth child, was my mother. And my mother had me pretty young. She was about sixteen years old, and. Fanny had a a huge hand in in raising me. If I really think of the place from which I came, it was a place from which I worked very hard to get away from when I was young. You know, I, I wanted to be a poet. I wanted to be a writer. I wanted books. And the only books you would ever find at Fanny's house was maybe the Bible and Cosmo magazine. You know, that was just about it. And um, what happened, of course, like a lot of people, you know, they they get away from home and then they find out that they go right back. And when we lost her in 2004, I found myself, um, as always, continuing to talk to her, continuing to ask her advice for things um, and, and reaching back. And... I didn't want her to disappear. You know, there was no one quite like her. I mean, she was tough as new rope, and she, you know, cursed like a sailor. And, you know, every morning, you know, she would put on her her sweet silver wiglet and tease it to Jesus and her Fredericks of Hollywood push-up bra and her false lashes, and she just had this sort of Zsa Zsa Gabor... um, thing about her, you know, and it, a lot of it too, wasn't just her style, but like this fierce strength. And so I, I, I wanted to find a way to, to preserve her. I come from a place in which no one wrote things down. Um, I come from a place in which those stories um, are largely, particularly of the women in my family, they're largely ignored, if not uh, forgotten entirely. And that just to me wasn't acceptable. 
So, you know, there is a way in which I'm going back to Kentucky all the time in, you know, sort of resuscitating those things again and again. I had zero uh, inkling that I wanted to be a writer until uh, I wrote a very creative uh, story about the periodic table and gave it to my chemistry teacher. And I think this was like my sophomore year in high school. This wasn't a particularly good school. And I think that my my teacher, um, she probably just should have um, failed me outright because I was just sort of dodging uh, science. <laughs> I think she kind of felt maybe a little sorry for me. And she said, you know what? Like, I think that you should apply to Governor's School for the Arts, which was a program in Kentucky that reached out to young artists and musicians and writers and sent them um, away to a two-week uh, arts boot camp. And by whatever, you know, grace there is, I said, okay. And I applied and got in. And I was um, 15 at the time. And you wouldn't think that two weeks would be that much to change someone's life. But I think when you're 15 and there's a door that opens that you've never been allowed to step through and you see um, what can be done with a voice and you see what can be done with language. And for me in particular, I think that I found this this community of people in which I didn't feel so freakishly different. And uh, that was it for me. That was all I wanted to do. And so I plunged headlong and made every sort of uh, terrible, cheap uh, Kinko's printed zine you can imagine and started a literary magazine in my high school and started working at a used bookstore, which at the time was really instrumental to me. It was uh, a, a bookstore called Twice Told Books. And the uh, proprietor, uh, who is this uh, cranky, uh, incredibly well-read curmudgeon, uh, he would pay me $5 an hour, but then would also send me home with all of the books that he thought I needed to read. And that was my education. I think that story is how we survive. I think it's one of the things that that makes us human. And owning a story and being able to articulate it um, is uh, a, a way to not only preserve the history of something, but to preserve your yourself in a way, or preserve a family. And I mean that in, in every sense of, of that word. And I think that that's what I was trying to do in both books was to take contrary, difficult uh, stories, um, or not, they weren't even really stories, actually, to take contrary, difficult fragments, shards, bits and pieces, and try to stitch together some sort of story that told the truth of the thing without forcing a narrative without forcing a plot or forcing sense. 
when you read Fanny's story, you won't find poems in there about her children. You know, she had seven children. And with the exception of uh, some mention of my mother, I did not feel... um, I didn't feel comfortable appropriating their stories and and bringing them into the mix. One of the most important things for me is uh, culpability. So uh, on in front of my writing desk, I, I have a little note, no villains, no victims, no villains, no victims. So, and, and I think it's very important when you're writing about family not to just point your finger and say, you know, look what you did or look what you did to me, no matter what it is. Because I think that we are all coming from complicated places in which we are shaped by history and we're shaped by the things that have happened to us and that means having compassion and empathy for whomever you're writing about and whatever they've done but then also investigating yourself and seeing okay you know where was it that that maybe you know I didn't do the best thing here All my life, um, since I, well, since I started writing, you know, since I received an education, I've been code switching. I've been going back and forth between um, the the southern vernacular that I grew up with, my the, the the mother tongue, that language that I know, and then the you know elevated, standardized. Uh, language brought to me by poetry and I wanted to find a way in this book in particular to inhabit both of those worlds and, and switch back and forth and be able to talk to my grandmother in the way that she talked to me but also um, write my poems so for years, without having any intention of using any of it, I would always write down the things that Fanny said to me. You know, she was always telling stories. She loved to tell stories over and over and over. She had a whole, you know, bushel of advice for just about everybody, and she would fuss at you over and over and over. And Sometimes in those notebooks, I would just write down the crazy shit that Fanny said, you know. So I had notebooks going all the way back to when I was about 15 years old, just full of my grandmother's voice. So when I put the book together, I went back to those notebooks. I looked at my big bubbly writing, you know, from when I was a kid, and I thought, oh, wait, like, I can type this out, and and Fanny can speak here. So you'll find within the book there are some poems that are prose blocks there's there's no lineation um justified right and left and they're left that way because i didn't write those poems i just wrote them down this poem in particular um is you know about the way that she just regularly dropped those f bombs and not only um you know incorporated them into the way she talked all the time but used 
you know, fuck as a term of endearment, you know. And when I was really young, I didn't even realize that it was a bad word, you know. And so I'm sort of, I'm sort of dealing with that. I think it's really interesting if you if you look at language and you look at uh, dialectical speech that when things become standardized, you don't just lose the curse words, you lose the the idioms, you lose the pronunciations, and everything gets flatlined. Everything gets scrubbed clean, quite literally. And for me, curse words just provide that little bit of grit you know you get that that texture back that was lost when the language moved over to what was considered to be more acceptable and for me at least curse words aren't meant to shock you know they're they're not meant to um come at anyone aggressively uh, they're not there to do any damage. They're they're there um, to be used in the in the way that my my grandmother used them, which was mostly just a a sassy peppering <laughs> of our sentences that added a lot of uh, humor and um, a lot of sauce. I'll be reading a poem called "Fuck." from Fanny Says. Fuck is what she said, but what mattered was the tone. Not a drive-by spondy and never the fricative connotation as verb, but from her mouth vowed, often preceded by well, with the you low as if dipping up homemade ice cream, waiting to be served last so she'd scoop the fruit from the bottom, where all the good stuff had settled down. Imagine, not a word cold-cocked or screwed to the wall, but something almost resigned. A sigh, an oh well, the F word made so fat and slow it was basset hound. Chunky, with an extra syllable, just enough weight to make a jab to the ribs more of a shoulder shrug. Think of what's done to shit in the South. This is shit, but flicked with a whip, made a little more tart. Well, fuck, Betty Sue. I never did see that coming. Can you believe? Or my favorite, not as explicative, but noun. Fucker, she said. But what she meant was darling, sugar pie, Sweet beats, a curse word made into a term of endearment, as in, come here, you little fucker, and give your grandma a kiss. If the child was young enough for diapers, he'd still be a shit-ass, but big enough to lift his arms and touch his hands together over his toddling toe-head. He was so big, all grown, a cute little fucker, watch him go. Fuck is what she said, but what she needed was a drum, a percussion to beat story into song, a chisel to tap honey from the meanest rock, 
Not just fuck if I know or fuck me running or fuck me sideways or beats the fuck out of me, but said tender, knowing there was only one thing in this whole world you needed to hear most. You fucker, you. Don't you know there wasn't a day when you weren't loved. If you still don't understand, try this. A woman up from poor soil, bad dirt, pure clay. A woman as succulent, something used to precious little water, hard sun, rock crop maybe, threading roots to suck nutrients from the nothing of gravel, the nothing of stone, a thriving thing, sturdy, thorned, green, out of mere spite. And because you least expect it, laughing, pussing up a storm. My grandmother, who didn't ask for power, but took it in bright, full, fuck-it-all bloom. This episode of Make No Bones was produced and edited by Toby and Emily Altman in Chicago, Illinois. The music for this episode is by Toby Altman. If you like what we do, check out our website, makenobonespodcast.org, for all our episodes. Or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And please consider rating us on iTunes. It really helps. Join us next time for an interview with Daniel Bordzutsky.